This is Josh Smith, pastor of Prince Avenue Baptist Church in Bogart, Georgia. Our mission at Prince is simple, leading people to trust and follow Jesus. And it's our hope that this sermon would help accomplish that mission. For more information about our church, visit us at pabc.org. We are in Isaiah chapter 50. Isaiah chapter 50 this morning. Several years ago, I had the opportunity to visit in Michigan. And it was during the summer and I was talking to a man who owned a lake. We were standing beside that lake and he was telling me that during the winter, that lake would completely freeze over with ice. And I, I come from a place where the, light, the slightest snow flurry is a sure sign that Jesus is coming. And so I, I didn't know exactly how to respond to that. So I questioned him, but he assured me it was true. He said the lake would freeze over. In fact, it would freeze over so solidly that they would actually drive trucks and park 18 wheelers on that lake. So I, I imagine myself standing there in the dead of winter in Michigan at the edge of that lake. And I, I realized there are a couple of questions that I needed to ask myself if, if I'm going to experience walking on that ice. First of all, I need to ask myself if I believe the ice will hold me. Is I need to ask, do I have faith in the ice? Because if, if I don't have faith, I'm not going to step out onto the ice. But there's actually an even more important second question, and that is, will the ice actually hold me? Because the reality is, it's not my believing in the ice that will support me and keep me dry. The question is, will the ice support my weight? So I need to ask, not only do I have faith, but I need to ask, is the ice worthy of my faith? Is the ice worthy of my trust? Because I can, I can stand on the side of that lake and I, I can be full of bluster and confidence and I can psych myself up and say, yeah, you know what? I believe, I believe, I believe, I believe I can walk on this ice and I can step out with great confidence. And if that ice is thin, I'm going to get wet. And on the other hand, I can stand on the edge of that lake with, with fear and trembling, what, what we might call a, a mustard seed of faith and, and even be filled to some degree with, with doubt. But, but I, I believe the man is telling me the truth. And so I, I just sl step slowly, gingerly, maybe one foot at a time, but eventually I get my weight out there. And in spite of my fear and trembling, if the ice is thick enough, it's going to hold me. See, the reality is that Everybody, to some degree, has a measure of faith because all that faith is, is belief that leads to trust, that leads to action. So even a, an atheist who says, well, I, I don't believe in faith, I believe in science, what he's actually saying is, I have faith in science. And, and so in light of that, the really important question we need to ask ourselves is, what about the object of our faith? Is our faith worthy of our trust? So when we think about trusting and following Jesus, when we think about having faith in Jesus for eternity and for every day of our life, both of those questions are really pertinent. We have to ask ourselves, do I have faith in Jesus? Because if I don't have faith in Jesus, 
I'm not going to commit myself to him. I'm not going to cast myself upon his mercy, believing that he can save me. But the other question is even more important, and that is, is Jesus really able to save me? Is he worthy of my trust? And even as believers, when we think about growing in faith, when we think about having a, a deeper or a stronger faith, that doesn't mean that I look within myself and get myself all psyched up and just tell myself, you know what, I believe, I believe, I can get through this. I, that's, that's not really a growing, deepening faith. A growing, deepening faith is a faith that is continually looking and learning about Jesus. Because the more we learn about Jesus, the more we see that he's worthy of our trust. And the more we understand his worth and his trustworthiness, then the more likely we are to cast ourselves upon him and trust him. And so this morning, as we work through the text of Isaiah chapter 50, let's have that focus. Let's let our focus be on the worth of Jesus as the object of our faith and our trust. So our objective is to learn about Jesus, to learn that Jesus is worthy of our faith so that in times of darkness, we will trust in him. So we're in Isaiah 50, if you're there in honor of Pastor Josh, who will be back August the 8th. Praise the Lord. Would you say amen? We're going to begin reading in verse 4, in verses 4 through 9, or the third of four servant songs that Isaiah records for us. So beginning in verse 4, the servant of the Lord is actually speaking throughout this song. The Lord has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning, he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I, heard, I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come down near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. So Isaiah records this song of the servant of the Lord, which we have seen is a prophecy of the Lord Jesus. Hundreds of years before Jesus comes, the servant of the Lord is speaking through the prophet Isaiah, giving us a picture of the trustworthiness of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus, the servant of the Lord, is actually speaking about his worth. And so from the text, we want to see his trustworthiness in three ways or three reasons why Jesus is worthy of our trust, our life, and our faith. So let's begin with verse 1. And uh, we, we want to see that Jesus is trustworthy because of his preparation. Jesus is trustworthy because of his preparation. Now, Luke, in Luke chapter 2 and verse 52, 
You remember as he's recording the life of Jesus, he gives us a summary of the life of Jesus in one sentence, basically telling us what happened from Jesus's childhood until his adulthood when he begins his public ministry. And that verse in Luke 2.52 is that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. So the picture is that Jesus throughout his life as he's growing and as he's maturing physically, he's also learning godly insight. He's learning wisdom and he is developing in love and grace in his relationship to God the Father. So we understand that Jesus Christ is God the Son. He is fully God. Okay, but he became man and he was a human being in the fullest sense of the word. And so he learned and he grew throughout his life. So what we find in Isaiah chapter 50 and verse four is actually Jesus saying every morning the father awakened him in order to teach him so that he was prepared to speak sustaining and comforting words to those who are weary. So God taught Jesus every day through the experiences of life and certainly through scripture so that Jesus was prepared to speak comforting and sustaining words that would sustain the weary. So we know about the life of Jesus. We know that Jesus felt the rejection of society. He felt the misunderstanding of family. We know that he felt the betrayal of friends. We know that Jesus faced temptation and injustice at every turn. We know that Jesus was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He was despised and rejected of men. But Isaiah is telling us that he did not merely endure those things. He actually learned from those things so that he could minister grace to those who were in need. Now, this is exactly what the writer of Hebrews expressed in Hebrews chapter 4. I know you remember this from Pastor Josh's sermon, but let's read those verses just to refresh our memory in Hebrews chapter 4. In verse 14, the Bible says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. One of my favorite episodes in the New Testament is, is the second missionary journey of the Apostle Paul. And that's the journey where Paul brought the gospel into Europe and Paul eventually made his way to Corinth in Acts chapter 18. And he, he comes to Corinth, which is a, a city of over 200,000 people. And if we had to describe Corinth, it would be a place of just extreme sexual perversion and thorough paganism. Corinth was a place that was known for its paganism and its immorality. And when Paul arrives in Corinth, he, he's already been to Philippi. In Philippi, he was beaten and thrown into prison. When he leaves Philippi, he goes to Thessalonica. In Thessalonica, the authorities arrest his host, Jason. 
And Paul has to be slipped out of town at night. He makes his way to Berea. The crowds from Thessalonica follow him down to Berea. They stir up a riot in Berea so that Paul has to be slipped out again at night. And he's taken and he's put on a ship where he sails down to Athens alone. He arrives in Athens and he begins to share the gospel and he's invited to actually share with the Athenian leaders up on Mars Hill. And so Paul goes up and begins to tell them about how they're wrong about God and they're wrong about life and they're wrong about the coming judgment. And Paul is, is proclaiming to them the gospel and when Paul gets to the issue of the resurrection, well, the Athenian philosophers just mocked him and ridiculed and basically shouted him down. And, and so Paul left Athens without a whole lot of success as far as we know. And so this is, this is where Paul has been. And he makes his way to this enormous pagan immoral city to go and share the gospel. And you can imagine how discouraged Paul must have been at that point in his life. But he begins his work. And in the midst of his work at Corinth... The Lord Jesus appeared to him in a vision and he said these words in, in Acts 18 verses 9 and 10. He said, Paul, do not be afraid and do not be silent, but keep on speaking because I am with you and I have many people in this city. Now, don't you think that it must have been an incredible encouragement and comfort for the apostle Paul to hear those words, but even more so would, would it not have sustained him knowing that the one who was speaking those words had in fact faced the same circumstances that he was facing and he had actually overcome them. My first pastorate was up in East Tennessee and um, it was a, a wonderful congregation with people that I loved then and I still love now. Um, and a, a wonderful little church with the exception that they cheered for the Tennessee Vols, which uh, was a difficult thing for me to bear. Um, but it was, a, it was a great opportunity for me and I was thankful for it. But you know, it's just like when you go into any first job, there are things that happen that you're not prepared for. And there are, there are things that you just don't learn in school until your feet hit the ground and, and you're running. And, and it was kind of that way with me, with that first church, things just happened. I, I didn't know how to handle them. Uh, again, the, the culture of, of the East Tennessee mountains is a little bit different than the culture of Athens, Georgia. And, and uh, I had some things I didn't understand. Well, my next door neighbor was a retired pastor. In fact, he was serving as the director of missions for our association of Baptist churches. And he, he was, he was a, a man who grew up in that area. He understood the culture. He had been a pastor. He, he had lived there all his life. He was a good bit older than me. So he had lived life. And man, what a, what a tremendous blessing he became and a real mentor to me. And what a sustaining comfort in my life that I could go to his office anytime and talk to him about what I was going through and know that he had been there and he'd done that. Well, that's exactly what Jesus is expressing in Isaiah 50. When Jesus says to us, peace, he has known the storms of life. When Jesus says to us, trust me, he's been in the darkness of temptation. When Jesus says, press on, he has felt the sorrow of betrayal. When Jesus says, follow me, he has walked the path of life. And he can sustain us for he has walked in our place without faltering and without failing. 
He is a worthy object of our faith because of his preparation. And because of his preparation, he is able to sustain us. Now in verses five through seven, we see that he's a worthy object of our faith because of his determination. Jesus is able not only to sustain the weary, he's able to save the lost. Now, verse six tells us that God set before Jesus a shatteringly difficult task that only Jesus could fulfill. Only one who is perfect, one who is sinless, one who is sent by God could accomplish his mission. And to accomplish our salvation, Jesus had to endure unimaginable pain, humiliation, and disgrace. He would be illegally arrested and tried by the Jewish leadership of his day. He would be accused of blasphemy without any evidence based on the testimony of paid liars. He would be marched from Pilate to Herod and back to Pilate again to be ridiculed and mocked in a kangaroo court. He would be condemned by the deafening cries of a crowd that just a few days prior had held him as king and now were clamoring for his crucifixion. He would be taken and he would be tied to a post and he would be beaten with a Roman whip that was designed to rip away chunks of flesh by soldiers who had developed their sadistic skills to perfection so that they were able to inflict maximum pain and shock without causing death. He would be mocked by pagan soldiers who would grab his beard and rip it out, who would take a crown of thorns and ram it down upon his head so the points of those thorns penetrated his scalp and set the nerves of his head on fire. He would be mocked. He would be spit upon. He would be beaten with fists. And then he would be marched shamefully through the streets as a common criminal, jeered by the crowds out to Calvary where he would be executed in the most degrading, humiliating, and torturous way possible. What Isaiah tells us as the servant of the Lord speaks is that he would face this not with reluctant acceptance, but that he would face it with faithful determination. So notice in verse five, he says, God has opened my ear. That is, God has given me understanding to know what's coming and what is his response. I was not rebellious and I did not turn back. And then we have the horrors of verse six and then verse seven, what does he say? God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint it's like I'm like a rock in my firm determination to move forward. So the horror of his mission was set before him and he did not flinch, but rather he faithfully obeyed. Now, why this resolute refusal to back away? Why this steadfast determination to stay the course? because this work was required to save and he had come to save. So our focus in verses five through seven, excuse me, is really drawn to the fact that Jesus obeyed, which is vitally important. Jesus said in Matthew five forty-eight, be perfect even as your father in heaven is perfect. Be perfect 
even as your father is in heaven is perfect. That's the standard that God has for me and that God has for you. Well, you know, as well as I do, that we can't get there. We can't even come close to the perfection of the holy God of the universe. So here's the situation we find ourselves in. God requires that we have no guilt. And God requires that we have righteousness. And what is our situation? Well, we have guilt for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we have no righteousness. For all our righteousness is like filthy rags. So we need Jesus' death to remove our sin, but we need Jesus' obedience to obtain righteousness. So when we trust Jesus, we're trusting Jesus not only because of his death, but because of his obedience in going to death. And because of his death and his obedience, he's able to save to the uttermost. Several years ago, I heard a kind of a silly little story that I think is appropriate because I tend to be silly. But imagine that there's a little boy and he's, say, five years old. And uh, this little boy is really excited. He wakes up Saturday morning and his best friend's having a birthday party right down the road. So he's so excited about getting to go to this birthday party. He gets up, his mom dresses him in some nice clothes and his mom has bought a present for him to take to his friend. He's really excited going to the birthday party. He sets off down the road walking to his friend's house. Well, as it would happen to be, it rained the night before. And as he's walking down the road, there's a big mud puddle right beside the road. Now, I was a little boy once. I have two sons who were little boys once. I have six grandsons, five of them are five and under. I'm a keen observer of the behavior of little boys. <laughs> that little boy does what little boys do. He puts down his present and he has a high old time playing in that mud puddle. And for a few moments of his life, he's forgotten all about a birthday party. He's just having fun. And after he's completely covered in mud, he picks up his present. He makes his way without a thought to his friend's house. He rings the doorbell. His friend's mom comes to the door. She looks down at this little boy covered with mud. And she says, you are not coming into my house. Well, she picks up her phone and she calls the little boy's mom. And the mom comes scurrying down to the house. And she says, listen, I'll take care of things if we could just go in your bathroom. And so the mom takes her boy into the bathroom. She takes off all his muddy clothes. She wipes off his face. She cleans up his hands. And now he's standing there and the stains and the mud are completely gone. But he still can't go to the party, can he? Because he's not standing in muddy clothes. He's standing in no clothes. And so what does mom do? His mom says, listen, I brought some nice clean clothes from the house. So let me put you on some nice clean clothes. And when the muddy clothes are gone and the clean clothes are put on, then he's ready to go to the party. And see what happens in our life when we come to Christ is what theologians call double imputation. And to impute something simply means to credit something to someone's account. So what happens when we come to know Jesus Christ, listen, this is important. 
When we come to know Jesus Christ, what happens in our life is that God has taken our sin and he has imputed, he has transferred our sin to Christ. So when Christ died on the cross, he was bearing the penalty for our sin. He carried our guilt. He paid our debt. By his blood, the stains are gone. But when we trust Christ, not only were our sins transferred to Christ, the goodness, the righteousness that Jesus earned as a man is credited to us. So that when we stand before God, we do stand as one accepted as perfect because we stand declared righteous by the righteousness of Christ. So that when we are in Christ, our sin is gone, forever paid, and we stand as righteous before God as Jesus is righteous because we are standing in his righteousness. That's why Jesus is able to save. The obedience of Jesus in going to the cross points to his worth to save us. He died to pay our sin debt so we're forgiven and he lived obediently to earn righteousness so we are declared perfect. This is why Augustus Top Lady in his hymn, Rock of Ages, wrote, let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. So in his determined obedience, Jesus provided everything, 100% of what is necessary for us to be right with God. He is able to save us. Thirdly, we see in verses eight and nine, his vindication. So in his preparation, Jesus is able to sustain us in his determination, he's able to save us. And in his vindication, he's able to secure us. To be vindicated means to be accused of a crime and then to be proven not guilty. To be accused of something and then cleared of blame. So Jesus endured the agonizing shame and torture of the cross and he died knowing that on the third day he would be vindicated for all eternity by the resurrection. For on the third day, God raised him up and through the resurrection, God declares Jesus is who he said he is and Jesus has done what he said he would do forever affirming that he is the Savior, the Son of God, the one who secures everlasting life for all who will believe. Look at the end of verse 7. Verse 7, he tells us at the end, I will not be put to shame. That is, he's going into this time of suffering. And he says, I will not be put to shame. And the beginning of verse 8, why is he not be put to shame? Because the one who vindicates me is near. So his suffering is before him and his suffering, he says, will not be the end. In fact, God will vindicate Jesus through the resurrection. So in light of that, in light of the resurrection, the servant of the Lord, Jesus, asked three questions. Rather, I think he's shouting three questions. 
It's as though Jesus is standing in light of the resurrection on the edge of the universe and he's shouting these questions and seeing, is there anybody out there who can challenge this? And so here's the first question in verse eight, who will contend with me? Who will contend with me? Jesus says, if you think you have a case against me, then come, let us stand together. That phrase means, let us stand face to face. But Jesus says that if you have an accusation, if you have a charge, then let's come and let's stand face to face. You Romans who have accused me of treason, you Jewish leaders who've accused me of blasphemy, the crowds who've accused me of being a deceiver, my own family that's described me as being deranged, the Pharisees that have accused me of being demonic, the scribes, the experts of the law, when they heard Jesus say, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, wagged their fingers and said, oh, no, 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 no. God is not interested in your spirit because you are accursed. This is the accusation. You're accursed before God because everyone who hangs on a tree, according to the law, is accursed. And so Jesus says, bring all of those accusations and come and stand at the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea and announce your charges. And then you watch as God says, sends an angel to roll away the stone and he raises me victoriously from the grave and he pronounces me vindicated as the risen glorious son of God. And he says his second question, who is my adversary? Who is my enemy? Who will make war against me? He says, all of you false religious leaders who wanted to destroy me, all of you Roman legions who have beaten me and tortured me and crucified me, Satan and all your forces of hell, you death and the grave, you bring all of your power, bring all of your animosity, bring all of your will to destroy me and you come and you stand in the first light of dawn on the first day of the week and you watch as your conqueror comes forth and you listen as the risen son of God declares, oh death, where is your sting? Oh grave, where is your victory? As he is vindicated against his enemies and thanks be to God who gives us the victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. He gives us his third question, who will declare me guilty? In light of the resurrection, who can bring any charge against this majestic savior who selflessly gave himself to die and now stands victoriously vindicated. Anyone who would bring a charge against the resurrected Christ is like somebody wearing a moth-eaten, worn-out shirt. They're not even worthy of our paying attention to, but Jesus, he is worthy of our faith because at the empty tomb, all the charges against him collapse. All the accusations against him fail. All the accusers are defeated. At the dawning of the first Easter, all questions are erased and every doubt flees because Jesus has unequivocally proven that he is the savior, the living hope who secures eternal life for all who will come to him. So in his vindication, he demonstrated he is worthy of our trust and he secured life for all who will trust in him. Is the object of your faith worthy of your faith? 
Whatever you're trusting today, is it trustworthy? When we look at the Lord Jesus and see his preparation, realize he's able to sustain us. We see his determination. We realize he's able to save us. We see his vindication and realize he's able to secure us. We see the one and the only one who is truly worthy of our trust. So what exactly do we do with this? Well, God tells us, and I didn't read verse 10 because it's not a part of the song, but the song builds a case for verse 10. And in verse 10, in light of what we learn in verses four through nine, God speaks. And this is what he says in verse 10. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. This is what God says. Consider verses four through nine. Consider the servant of the Lord. Consider Jesus and trust in him. Trust in him. If you're walking in darkness, he's worthy of your trust. And it's, it's so interesting to me that this admonition to trust Jesus immediately follows the explanation of why Jesus is trustworthy. So he gives us the reason before he even gives us the admonition. Indiana Jones is, what a great explorer. Man, I love the Indiana Jones movies. And you know, the Indiana Jones movie, The Last Crusade, he's searching for the Holy Grail, right? And so he's made his way through all of these, all of these tests and trials and he, he comes, he's, he's just right so close. He, one more thing, one more thing in his little book, The Bridge of God. And he comes out and all of a sudden there's this vast abyss before him. And it's a chasm that's, that's so deep that he can't even imagine how deep and it's so far across. He looks across with his arms against the wall and he says, it's impossible for anybody to cross that. It's impossible for anybody to leap across that. And then it, like a light bulb comes on and he says, it's a leap of faith. And so this is what he does. He closes his eyes and he puts out his foot and the camera focuses on his boot. And he steps out hoping against hope that there's something out there that'll catch him. Now, I wanna tell you something. If you like Indiana Jones for entertainment, that's a good thing. If you like Indiana Jones for theology, not good. Not good. Can I tell you, that's not biblical faith. That's not biblical faith. Nowhere does the Bible say, close your eyes and leap. The Bible says, open your eyes and look. Look at Jesus. Don't look within. Don't look at your idols. Don't look at your stuff. Look at Jesus. Because while you can't get across that chasm, Jesus can. And when we look at the Lord Jesus, we see one who has demonstrated why he's trustworthy, who's demonstrated why we should trust him in his life of learning, in his obedient death, in his victorious resurrection. He has shown us that he's all that we need. In the darkness of discouragement and doubt, 
He can sustain us. In the darkness of sin and separation from God, he can save us. In the depths of the darkness of death, he can secure us. You see what God has done? He's not just given us this admonition. Trust me when you're walking in darkness. He has shown us exactly why we should trust him. And he has set before us the case of why we should trust Jesus so that we would be encouraged in knowing this. When we trust and follow Jesus, we are trusting and following one who is eternally worthy of our trust. He is our hope in life and he is our hope in death. And we can trust him for eternal life and we can trust him for life tomorrow and we can trust him for the moment right now. So I just want to ask you to ask your faith. Ask your faith to focus squarely on the servant of the Lord. Ask your faith to draw near to the son of God. Ask your faith to look to Jesus and to keep on looking to Jesus because in him we find all that we need and in him we find one who is absolutely, unequivocally worthy of our trust. And we're gonna pray and after we pray, we're gonna sing. And we're gonna sing a song of worship that just reminds us of these truths. And I pray that you would just sing and that the joy of the Lord would resonate from your heart as an expression of thanksgiving and praise to the Lord. But I also pray that as we sing, you would give thought to who or what you're trusting. And particularly if you're here today and you're in the darkness of sin and you don't have a relationship with God, there are counselors that are going to be here in the front. Coming down here won't save you, but there are counselors who can take you to a private place and show you from God's word how you can be saved and you can go from this place today in a right relationship with God through faith in Christ. If you're in the darkness of discouragement, you just need to come and pray. Feel free to do that. If you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death and just need some encouragement, you need someone to speak to, come. But as we stand and sing, let's worship the one who is our hope in life and death. Would you stand with me and let's pray. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen to this sermon. May you trust and follow Jesus more and lead others to do the same. For more information, visit us at pabc.org.